Bible or a phone or something, you'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 21 and chapter 22. 2 Samuel 21 and 22. So we've been working through 1 and 2 Samuel now um, for several months. We've just got a couple of weeks left and we'll be wrapping up this section of scripture. Um, we have been working through um, just a little bit of a recap here. First uh, and Second Samuel is a some three thousand year old story. It's telling the story of of God's people leaving the period of the judges and becoming a, a monarchy, having a king. In that, they've rejected God as king because they've wanted a king like the nations. And so that that first king Saul was more of a curse. David has been the anointed king, um, but he's not been a perfect man. And so it's walked through the history, but it's also been showing us God's plan, um, that there's going to be a king from David's line who will be on the throne forever. We know that to subsequently be Jesus, right? that his kingdom is eternal, as good of a king as David is, that we needed something more and something better, and it was Jesus. And so we've been looking through the narrative and the story in the history of First and Second Samuel. Um, really, these two books are one story, um, separated mostly because of length um, when it came to, to scrolls and things like that. The first seven chapters of First Samuel were really a prologue, right? That was the story of Hannah and then Samuel, and it's, it's just kind of setting up the story a little bit. And then we enter the time of Saul as king. We follow that with the period of Saul and David, where the story circles both of them, where, where Saul is king and David's the anointed one, and Saul's basically trying to eliminate and kill David. We then move into the section of just David. And now the last four chapters of this story um, are really the epilogue, right? It's, there's, there's some new information that's coming, but it's really kind of summarizing where we've been, giving a little bit of new information and helping us kind of to wrap things up. Because if you remember where we ended last week, was it, it just began to show his cabinet members, basically, or the last few verses. And it was that reminder that order has been restored. There's no more threats to the crown. David is king. He is in charge. And this book is coming to an end. And so we're going to pick up, and I, and I told you we're going to look at chapters 21 and 22. We're actually going to start in 22. Um, and then go back into 21 as we work our, th- our way through chapter 22. Um, chapter 22 is going to feel like a psalm, um, mostly because it is a psalm. Um, it's, it's the bulk of Psalm 18. They're not identical, but it's, it's the same psalm here. And David is going to be kind of singing, praising God through this psalm in 2 Samuel 22. So let's pick up in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord 
to my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. How different does that read having walked through First and Second Samuel? Right? Like we were not just simply trying to say, okay, here's some things that happened in David's life. We've been walking for months now seeing the king, Saul, sending hundreds of men into the wilderness simply to kill David. We've seen his own son, Absalom, betray him and attempt to lead a coup. Right? We've seen people in, in the kingdom walking, cursing him, throwing dirt clods at him, right? worthy of death. Right? We've seen false accusations. We've also seen battles with the Philistines and with Goliath. We've seen David's own sin and the consequences and the effect of his sin. And so now when he, he, when he just goes, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Right? Like I call upon the Lord. Like This isn't just a psalm. Right? As you're reading in the morning with your coffee, this is David exclaiming, this has been my life. And I've come to you in the midst of all of it. He's talking to his rescuer, to the one who's taken him out of trouble, and David has had trouble. The Lord has delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, we see in verse 1. And he's just describing, God, you've been my rock. And you know when he's writing, you've been my rock, that he's imagining being on the rock when Saul's army's on the other side and he's maneuvering and then Saul's army gets called off the battle, and God has rescued him while he was on the rock. You've been my fortress. Like he's been hidden in the wilderness. You've been my deliverer. He's been rescued time and time again. I've taken refuge in you. You've been my shield, the horn of my salvation, right? Like that sounds like, kind of like a cornucopia, right? It's not a cornucopia, it's like the horn of a bull, right? Like you have been the bull swinging the horn bringing my rescue and my salvation. It hasn't always been by my hand. It's really never been by my hand. You have done these things. And he's not, um, he's not pretending like he didn't feel things. You see strong emotion. I've cried out. The waves of death encompass me. Right? He's been hunted for much of his life. He's had people trying to kill him. He's like, God, I have felt these things, and I have cried out to you. I've been assailed. I feel like I'm being brought down to the depths and to death. In my distress, I called, and you heard me. You heard my cry. Okay, this is rich, and it's deep, and it's personal, and it's David's life. Right? It's been his life. So if you turn back to chapter 21... We're going to see an example of this. I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So it was three consecutive years. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There's blood guilt on Saul, the previous king, and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? 
And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. All right, so we've just heard David um, praising God in chapter 22 of the rescue, right, of, of dealing. And we, we go back now to chapter 21, and we have this interesting scene where in Joshua chapter 9, right, so before we had got to First and Second Samuel, when, when the people of God have finally ar- arrived in Canaan, in the promised land, a group of people show up, and they have heard that God has given the people this land. They've heard of the rescue um, from the Egyptians. They've heard of the defeats and the, the wins and the military victories, right? And so they're going, hey, we, we know that God is giving you this land. And they lived there. And they were afraid of losing their land. They are afraid of being defeated in battle. And so they basically um, dress like they're travelers, that they're haggard and weary. They have dried and busted wineskins. They have crusty food. And they come up to the people of God and Joshua goes like, hey, who, who are you people? And they say, we came from a faraway land. Like, we've heard of you. And they said, well, let's make a treaty. Let's, let's make a deal. And so Joshua, it says in Joshua 9, does not consult with the Lord. And he makes a treaty with the, the Gibeonites. And then later on, they realize they've been fooled that these people lived just a few miles away. And they've been made a fool of them. But they've made a treaty and the people of God affirm the treaty, they keep the treaty, and they don't remove them from the land. Now, generations later, Saul's on the scene, and in his zeal for nationalism, right? He, in, in his desire for Israel to have it, he kills a bunch of Gibeonites. And now David is going, wait a second, we've had a famine for three years. In Deuteronomy 28, it told the people of Israel, listen, if you are disobedient, there's some things that you're going to see happen. One of those things is famine. And so one year of famine, not a huge deal, but now it's been three years in a row. And David, unlike Joshua in that scene, seeks the Lord and goes, okay, what have we done something? Is there something we need to make amends for? Is there something that's on us that's causing you to bring famine? God lets him know, yeah. It's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. You had a treaty. You've killed them need to make it right. In Exodus 21-23, um, in Leviticus 24, we, we see kind of this idea of an eye for an eye, that if you cause the loss of life, that the loss of life, right, the blood guilt makes it right. It's, it's a hard section of Scripture. And so what happens then is they say, we want seven of Saul's kin, sons or grandsons, whoever's left. And so David turns these seven over. The Gibeonites go, and they, they hang them, right? They, they, and they leave their bodies to be exposed. And one of the mothers goes out and basically lays there amongst them because they want the bodies left, and she's trying to keep the, the birds and the animals away. And eventually, David goes out and honors those seven, and Saul and Jonathan, that whole line, and they bury their bones, right? And the rains return. So listen, it's an ugly scene. 
right? This idea of, of atonement, of making things right with the Gibeonite, it's ugly, it's brutal. You're thinking, what did these people do to deserve this? Like, why is this? It just kind of makes you uncomfortable. It makes your skin crawl a little bit. But the idea of atonement is to make reparation, right? Is to make right for, for past sin. And as we examine this scene that just feels like, okay, why is this included? This random scene that we didn't even know that Saul did this, right? It's not included earlier. Why is this included? Why is this here? So that we would see the ugliness. Right, that we would see in this scene, we feel uncomfortable, it feels slimy, it feels unnecessary. We're asking the question of who's guilty, who's innocent, why do we need blood for blood, those type of things. Church, that we would look at our atonement. That we would look at the cross. When we think of it, sometimes we can, we can make it picturesque, and it was anything but. Right, that as Jesus was beaten, he was mocked. As he had a sham of a trial, he was crucified and was murdered. Right, it was to make atonement, not for his sin because he was innocent, to make atonement for our sin, those of us who would come to know him. First John two two says that like he he is the propitiation, he is the atonement for the world for our sin. And as we see the uncomfortability of First Samuel or Second Samuel twenty one, would we be able to look back at the cross now and say, in that ugliness, that's my sin being atoned for. It's Jesus being hung on behalf of the one who did the work when he didn't do it, who have done the atrocities, who have done the violence and the sin, who have been enemies and rebels to God. 2 Samuel 21 is our story, right? We're Saul in that story having gone against God and needing forgiveness, needing peace, needing reparations, needing atonement, and Jesus has done that. So, so turn back now to 2 Samuel 22. Let's look down at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me. From His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. What? David, you're saying you're clean before the Lord? You're, wait a second, you, you assaulted Bathsheba, right? You have killed, you have, like, blood is on your hands. Sexual assault, like, and he's, listen to what he says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. False. Right, like, that, like you're going, wait a second, David, we've, we've just walked through your story. If we were unfamiliar with First and Second Samuel, maybe we would think of David and Goliath and go, yeah, David was, was a good dude. And yet we've just seen that David wasn't just a good dude. The, the, the overall trajectory of his life was pointed at God, of seeking God, of responding to Him. But he had these like, like detours that were atrocious. And so how is it 
that he can claim that the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Now I want you to remember in Genesis 15, right, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Right, like that he's looking at God and saying, I believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. That you're going to make a nation out of us. You're going to bless the world. That you're going to rescue us. I believe it. And in that belief, he gets righteousness back. That God affirms, like, you, you trust me. Now church, we gain righteousness by looking back at the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Right? It's not in our behavior. It's not in our action. We look back at it and say, because of Jesus' perfect life, mine's not, because of His obedient death in my place because of my imperfect life, and because He defeated our enemies of sin and Satan and death and lives today, I get righteousness. Like It's imputed. It's put on me that when God sees me, He doesn't see my imperfect righteousness. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness because I've trusted that He is sufficient for me, for my need, and for my salvation. And so David here is not claiming to be blameless. He is not claiming to have earned something. He's not claiming that, that he has not sinned or that he is perfect. Remember in 2 Samuel 12, 13, when the prophet Nathan is talking to him after Bathsheba, he says, the Lord has forgiven you. You will not surely die. It was not that it, we're, we're not whitewashing his sin here. He's simply saying, what I have is from God. And it's perfect in its righteousness. Right? We want to juxtapose chapter 21 and the violence that we just saw, the need for atonement, with the fact that David can then claim, like, I have righteousness. Like, it's, it's perfect. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. David is talking about himself, not just us. He's like, their lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Church, this is us. This is David going, yes, I am marred and scarred and marked by sin, but in Christ, I have perfect righteousness. Not of my own hand that I can boast about it, that I will boast in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who now when God sees me, I am righteous because of His work, not mine. Because of His obedience, not mine. Because of His faithfulness, not mine. And I get to inherit all that Jesus gets because of what He's done. Like, should overwhelm us that we receive this sort of grace and mercy. Paul writes it slightly different. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 
for our sake, He made Him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when David is singing and praising God for His righteousness, he's not beating his chest and saying, I am boasting. He's saying, look at what I've received. Church, it's the same for us. We know that we are marked by sin, but we have the righteousness of Christ if we trust that Jesus has done what we could not do and is reconciled and made us right with the Father. We, we skip verses 7 through 20 in chapter 22. So if you'll go back to verse 7, David writes this, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice. My cry came to His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and a devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under His feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around Him His canopy. Thick waters, a gathering of water. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before Him, coals of flame flamed, a fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. Then the Most High uttered His voice, and He sent out arrows and scattered them, lighting and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundation of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent me from on high and took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Right? And you, go, you can go, okay, get a little bit lost in just the poetic language there as it's describing this scene. But what's He describing? He's describing, he's describing Exodus 19 and 20. When the people of God who have walked out of Egypt right, now come to Mount Sinai, and God comes down on Mount Sinai and He tells them, don't touch the mountain or you're going to die. And He comes down in, in, in fire and smoke and thunder. And it's where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Listen to just a couple of the verses here and see if you don't hear the same language. This is um, Exodus 19.8. Um, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? And, and then it begins with the, the language here in verse 19. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top. And he tells them, like, he warns them, listen, like, when I come, don't touch it. We go over to chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Right? Like they're terrified by the scene as the mountain is trembling and God is coming. So why is David writing so much of this psalm here in 2 Samuel 22 about a scene that he wasn't at? 
He did not experience the mountain quaking. He didn't experience the smoke billowing. He didn't experience the thunder and the trepidation and the fear. Why is he talking about that moment after saying, God, you've rescued me, and now you've given me righteousness? Why is he looking at this moment, giving so much time to it? Because church, the exodus was the salvation moment of the Old Testament. When God conquers Israel's greatest enemy, right? Like Egypt had them enslaved, and he pulls them out, not by their mighty hand, but by his mighty hand. When they were few in number, right? He brings them out and rescues them. He opens up the Red Sea so they can pass through it, right? We see reference to that, right? That he drew me from on high. He took me out of many waters. He rescued me from the strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. The Exodus was the salvation moment of the Old Testament where God says there is purpose in this people and they are mine and I will care for them and there's nothing too strong for me. And it's how people knew the promises of God were true and that God was faithful. And so when they needed it, they would look back on the Exodus and go, okay, if God did that, He's still God. If God rescued us, He's still going to do something with us. Look at what God's done. Is there anything too strong for me or for my God? Right? He's remembering this huge moment and saying, that's, that's my story too. It's how I know His faithfulness and His promises are true because that's my story of my people. Church, likewise for us, the cross. How do we know that God's promises are true? How do we know that He'll be faithful we don't just look back to the Exodus, we look back to the cross. See, listen, if Jesus has done that on our behalf, what will He not give us for life and godliness? Will He not return for us? Like He has defeated our enemies that were mighty for us, sin and Satan and death, our own addictions, our own um, being the enemy of God. He has done it. And we look back and we cling to that moment saying, you're returning for us. You're coming for us. You're faithful. And you've even not just given us the cross, you've given us your Holy Spirit as a down payment, a deposit, of a seal for us. That you have done what you said you would do. We can trust that you'll continue to do what you promised to do. It's our story. Even though we weren't at the cross, even though we weren't there in the crowd, it is our story. And like David clinging to the Exodus, we can cling to the cross. Let's see where this psalm ends. Go down to verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the height. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me. Like you just hear him talking about his life here. My feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. 
Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. I cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nation. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Right? So he's saying, listen, you made me king, and you've brought people under. And, and, and so this whole scene here is, look, look at what I've done, but look what you did. Right? Like all of it is, I fought, but you did. I did this, but you did. Right? Like it's this reminder that David gets sung about and he gets praised, and David is simply affirming, yes, I had some moments in my life, but God, you were present in all of them. You were the one who was working. You were the one who was giving grace. You were the one who was giving victory. You were the right. He's saying, God, I know it was you. Like that my enemies are gone because of you, that I led because of you, that I was king because of you, that I didn't fall because of you. And so if we go back to chapter 21, after that scene of atonement between the Gibeonites, um, from 15 to 21, there's the mention of four giants being killed. Four different giants. So remember, Goliath had been killed earlier. He goes through, and the, the, the first one um, that, that Abishai is going to kill, basically David is in war, he's fighting, the, the Philistines realize he's there, that he's older, they try, to, they try to defeat him and say, listen, we can snuff out the lamp of God right in the kingdom of Israel. And this giant is about to kill David when Abishai comes in and kills him. Right? Verse 17, But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, attacked the Philistine, and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After that, we see a second giant killed. Um, we then um, have one that's called Goliath that's killed. And then finally, there's one that has six toes on each foot and six fingers on each hand. He's not given a name. That was probably enough of an identifier. Like That was a little unusual that he had 24 digits. Um, and he is killed, right? And so what? why this strange scene in, in chapter 21 of just the mention of four giants being killed. Right? That David is being reminded, I didn't lead alone. I didn't win victories alone. And it wasn't just that God put me up. Like, I was rescued by my mighty men. Others did great and valiant things. Right? Others did brave things. And others did things that should be applauded and known. Um, just a quick aside, if you're looking... In uh, verse 19, it says, There was again a war with the Philistines at Gob and Elham. Um, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite. Seems to contradict that, that David killed Goliath, that we, we saw chapters and chapters and chapters ago. First um, Chronicles 25 refers to the same section with the phrase, the brother of Goliath. Um, so, a couple of options here. Um, either the the one who was copying first and second Samuel left out the phrase brother of Goliath, or potentially um, because of Goliath in that moment, the, the, the people of Israel kind of called all the giants Goliath if they didn't know their name, right? Like that just kind of became a euphemism, and this is simply referring to another giant. 
killed by another individual. Um, but in this, David is going, listen, I won, and I got credit, but others helped, but it was by the grace of God that any of it happened. Right? And so we're giving some examples of that, and then he sings about this, that it's, it's I, and it's them, and it's us, and God, ultimately, it's you. Let me see if I can maybe summarize this. Often, if, if I'm at any sort of like pastor's conference or any sort of gathering of, of other ministers, I'll be referred to as the church planter of Redeemer Pampa. Singular, right? Like, Jeremy planted Redeemer Pampa is what they'll say. And it, to some effect, that's true. I was here. I, I, I took initiative. But I did not plant this thing. There were other people involved, always. It was never a solo effort, ever. There, was, uh, there were others around who are part of the core, who this church exists because of them. And so, right, David is king. He gets some praise. Sometimes someone can say, Jeremy, you did this. But David and I would both say, no, 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 look at what everyone else did. Right? It wouldn't have happened without them. And then ultimately, what David and his mighty men, or what myself and those of us who were here then, who are still here doing this, would say, but by the grace of God. Right? Like, that God did the work. That if He didn't meet us in our singing, if He didn't meet us in our preaching, if He didn't go before us and stir hearts, if He wasn't saving souls, if He wasn't bringing forth maturation and discipleship and righteousness, nothing happens that is of any eternal consequence. David is not king without God. And in the practicality of the world, there were those who supported and loved and served Him. Redeemer doesn't exist without people putting forth energy and effort, but it only matters because God has in, in, in given it His mercy and His grace and His faithfulness. And apart from Him, we don't want it. There's nothing of any value. And that's what David is saying here. Of like, yes, I did these things, but you, God. Ultimately, you. You. So let's see how he ends it. Look at verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. You can just picture chapter after chapter of First and Second Samuel here. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Right? You just see this final praise. It's personal. It's, he's like, you literally rescued me from my enemies. You literally brought me out. Church, for us this morning, could you sing this? Praise be to God. And then you fill in the personal blanks. For addiction is no longer has a hold on me. Right? For that sin that once owned me and controlled me no longer does. For the fear of death I no longer have. Right? Like that you just begin to fill it in. What has God done with sin, with struggle? What have you overcome with sickness? What addiction? Like as you think through, as we sing not David's song here, but our song, praise be to God for look at what you've done in my life. You are worthy, and I will cling to the rock, and I will give praise, and I will sing to the nations because you have been faithful, and here's how I can speak to that faithfulness in my life. And I want to sing to it, and I want to praise 
you for it. And so the question to end with this morning is this, is how has and how is God being a rock of refuge in your life? And are you clinging to that rock amidst all circumstances? Listen, David's life, just because he was king, was not easy. We've seen that. Yet he clung to God. He sought God. Even when he occasionally went astray, he was back clinging to the righteousness that God had given him. Church, this morning, are you clinging to the rock of righteousness? Would you be reminded that it's not in your ability to cling that will keep you there, but it's in His strong hand. He has you. But listen, as you think through the rock lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, if there's nothing to fill in the blank after, if there's no, nothing that you would say He's rescued you from, would you ask, like, maybe you don't know Him. Right? Like maybe you need to ask the question, God, would you rescue me? Would you help me to see where you've brought me from? To know what you've done in my life for your good and for your glory. You are the rescuer. You are my righteousness. I can trust you. I can worship you. And even in our clinging to the rock, that is worship because we're saying, I trust that the cross is sufficient for me. If i got nothing else, I cling to the cross and your resurrection. As David clung to the Exodus, Mount Sinai. Right? He's not letting his sin wash over him. He's letting the righteousness and faithfulness and goodness of God who has him hold him. So this morning, would we be held? And would we cling as worship? And if you're going, I don't know if I know God in that way, that in these moments even he would begin to call your name. So you're mine. You are secure in my hand. Trust that my life was meant for you. My death is in behalf of you. And my resurrection has won it for you. That we would cry out, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, with David. Church, I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to have a time of worship where we can sing. And as David sung with thoughts of his life right, flashing across him as he pins the word, would we sing to our God who hears our cries in His temple, who responds to our distress, would we sing letting the thoughts and the experiences of our life and our rescue right, come across our heart and our mind and sing to the One who has been there, who has responded, who is rescuing this morning. If you need someone to talk to, someone to pray with about anything, there be some folks in the back of the room that would love to do that. You can sit, you can stand, but would we respond to our King this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You that we don't have to simply um, trust a word on a page, but that we can look back and know that, Lord, You rescued a people from Egypt. God, and that's our story. God, that You rescued um, us from our sin. God, because of Jesus, His life, His death, and His resurrection. God, and that He's coming back for us to restore what we are meant to have and where we're meant to be, and that is with You for all eternity. God, would we not miss that? God, would we not claim righteousness that's not ours or beat our chest thinking we have somehow earned or impressed or garnered something? But instead, God, that we would receive a free gift of grace and mercy. 
praising your name this morning alongside King David. Lord, because you have defeated our enemies, and we are no longer your enemy, Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.